0: The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Detroit, we got eggs up there. Let's
1: try radio on Detroit. All right, come on, I don't want to
0: tell you right now. I've got a problem for you, right? Let's try it there. Go down, please. welcome back to the lead pursuit podcast tonight we're joined by defense wargamer author of the war game bandits 2 which yes i realize that's a that's a crazy name for an aerial war game but it is the second edition of a game about bandits david redpath thanks for joining us tonight
1: hey good evening thanks very much doug and thanks for inviting me to lead pursuit
0: Absolutely. So uh, you are far more cerebral than our usual fare that we have on here. So uh, I had to get rid of the rest of the podcast. I had to get rid of the rest of the uh, the miscreants and the troublemakers and uh, and get rid of all that so we can have a a uh, highbrow discussion about wargaming and and game design and construction. So uh, hopefully, hopefully, this will be something that everyone's going to find useful for us.
1: I don't know how cerebral it's going to be. It's about 9 You know, I've you know I've got a BS here, so it's we'll see how it, we'll see how it goes.
0: Huh. Yeah. My, my. I'm on my second Jack and Coke, so I think we are probably pretty good there. So it <laughs> may not be as cerebral as I'd hope. <laughs> All right, well let's let's jump into your background a little. So I, obviously you're a defense wargamer. You do a lot uh, for a variety of services countries and things and militaries, but let's talk about your wargaming background. How did you get started going down either miniatures based wargaming, hex and counter wargaming or any of that?
1: Yeah, I guess um, I'm definitely going to age myself here, but the very first war game I bought was in 1973. And it was an an SPI (laughs) board game, and it was called Suez. Um, Sorry, Sinai, as you were, Sinai. And it had three, you know, Arab-Israeli conflicts um, built into the game, the one 48, 56, and 67. And then, and then of course, as I bought that, that board game, the very first one which I bought from the States, from the UK, and, of course, this was in the days before the internet when you had to write letters to people and, and this sort of stuff. And, um, and it came through the post, and as it came through the post, the Arab-Israeli war started. So I was it's able.
0: Pertinent. Good so timing. <laughs> great timing.
1: So I was uh, I was hooked because I was able to follow the battles, you know, on the maps. Um, I was uh, you know introduced to my first you know combat results tables and all this sort of stuff. So I guess you know it's a classic hexen uh, you know hex counter war game. Um, but I had um, I, I was part of a, a war games club when I was a young guy before I joined the military. Uh, And they were, you know, they were into every period of history, uh, miniatures, largely, not not solely, but largely, Um, every period of history you could think of. I grew up in the northeast coast. So, um, you know, Jutland was quite literally due east of where I lived. Um, right, right. And, uh, you know, the remnants of World War One and World War II facilities were all around me. Uh, there was a gun battery on the coast. I lived on the northeast coast. There was a, a big 15-inch gun battery there, which was dug into the cliff uh, to defend the time. And there was a submarine base up the road. And and a seaplane um, base and a fighter base from World War One. Uh, were quite literally four miles four miles down the road in, in a little country village just down from my home. So I was surrounded by military history and, um, you know, became very interested in that. And of course, when I joined the military, I went off to Sandhurst and trained to be an officer there. And so uh, I was very lucky, really lucky to have as my military history uh, instructor at the academy, the Royal Military Academy, uh, Paddy Griffiths, who was, you know, a, a huge war game influence in, in the UK certainly, and um, some of the some of the the people who were at the very forefront of miniature war gaming uh, in its in its you know inception, I guess, in, certainly in the UK, uh, people like Brigadier Peter Young, who was an ex-commando. Uh, who developed a set of rules called Charge for Napole in you know, the Napoleonic War? Uh, Donald Featherston I met uh, on a number of occasions. Uh, so all of these people, uh, Bill Ramming, uh, I, there's a, there's I could go on, uh, but they um you know these these were the people who basically started off miniature wargaming in the UK and then advanced it beyond you know uh, straightforward sets of rules to you know wargames development. Uh, and, and a variety of other um, uh, you know what I'm going to say perhaps you you said it before more cerebral sort of wargaming I, I remember Griffith saying you know figures are now causing me too much bother so we won't we won't have any more you know, so, <laughs> I should so understand
0: thing. that well I, I have one of Featherstone's books I have is aviation uh, war gaming air power Wargaming on on the bookcase in front of me and while it is a good read it is so. That period. And, and I yes. don't know how to describe yes. that period of Wargaming where everything alternated between such precision and then such immersion. And and I would laugh. I'd go, we've we realized we don't need some of that. I mean, yes, no. it's cool to hang an airplane from the ceiling and fly it across your 12-foot table of your battlefield, but that might be a step too far. Well, I think we why, can just why put why it on the stand. Yes, why would you do
1: that?
0: <laughs> I, get, I got to that page and I'm like, fascinating. I do not think I will be doing that. Uh, that was that was <laughs> but, that, that, said, that was yeah. wargaming that is days.
1: Yeah. yeah, and 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 you know, it was weird because I mean, there was a there was a wargaming club at the Murray Academy, and uh, you know we. We did campaigns and uh, you know studies of everything you can possibly think of, b- both professionally, but also for fun in the evenings and and and, and so on. Um, I was at the forefront because I did computer science. I'm an infantry officer by uh, by trade, but because I also did uh, computer science, I had a background in computer science. So when the very first computer war games came out, um, you know, I had I had a PC miles before most people, if you see what I mean, and uh, right. and therefore, you know, dived straight
0: into every war game that was published.
1: And as you say, some of them were terrible and some
0: of them were pretty good. Oh, thank-
1: <laughs> you know, some of them
0: were awful. I, I, I just laugh how many hours I spent on on tons of them. I mean, there were ones that were great, like Steel Panthers and, and games like that that I, I really enjoyed and I, I wish I could remember... Two of the strategic ones that I think were Microprose to- titles, mm-hmm. but they were like a knockoff of, of uh, Third Reich, um, but they were just as complex and took just as long to play. And having it on the computer really didn't save you any hours in the day.
1: Well, no. <laughs> some—I mean, some of those, um, some of those games. Uh, I, I think there was one called Flight Commander or something, right. uh, and then Flight Commander right. Two, which is done by Avalon Hill. And it was a computer war game. It had, you know, all the loadouts of all the aircraft, all the missions, altitude, G-lock, everything that you could possibly think of that you would put into, you know, a game about aerial combat was represented there. And the right. graphics were clunky and so on and so forth. But, you know, so I, I I, guess I've come, you know, all the way through now to, you know, Command on Steam and, uh, you know, all of the Illusion yep. um, series um you know fighter games and stuff Um, but i think i think my in my heart of hearts um i'm a i'm an infantry skirmish guy from practicality um and i'm an air power buff almost by coincidence because i did a couple of attachments to the raf um and and found it fascinating and and i guess it was it was the difference between what i was doing on the ground where you know three miles an hour was like a top speed um to you know to 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 the the straight absolute contrast of you know 200 nautical mile you know radar ranges and stuff so i think i think that's probably why I, i got into the um into the air side of it anyway
0: well, it, it's fascinating. And we've talked about that on the podcast, because obviously the the wide background of the the rest of the podcast members, and I've even talked to, with other defense war gamers like uh, Phil Bolger-Cortez, who obviously works for um, the, the US Air Force, but is a tanker by trade. And so yeah. he and I laugh about that. We can have very similar vocabularies. We can talk about similar actions, but yet just by virtue of the the way we were raised in our own specialties we think about things differently i think at 480 knots and yes. he thinks at maybe about 25 maybe 40 you know and, yes. and it's just it's the it's the it's the it's two different ways of approaching very similar problems but it's funny because it's ingrained in us by the kinds of problems we've had to solve you know and and the, and the way we do things
1: and, and, and now I'm you know after doing um, you know fairly long stint in industry in the defense industry um, and but also doing adult education as well I got on the training side so I started seeing the correlation between experiential learning for adults. I've got a post, post-grad doc in that. Um, and games and, and you know, Sims. Right. And, uh, you know, people call them Sims, but, you know, they're basically games with decisions. Um, and um, so I, I, I branched from using wargaming quite literally to plan real operations to becoming a civilian and using games to train you know everything from logistics to management techniques and so on and so forth i was in the automotive industry for a long while and then went back into defense into the defense industry so it always um, draws you back <laughs> yeah it does actually it's almost it's it's a hoop, you know and uh, and so i get a great kick now i work for the dnd up here in canada and um i'm part of a section in our joint war gaming uh, um center canadian joint war, uh, war fighting center and um and you know we we design develop and run games for canada primarily and occasionally we branch over into uh, into other countries as well and um, yeah. and and it, and it's great to rub shoulders with people wearing green blue or blue uh, again <laughs> and uh, and we are using. We are reviving wargaming up here in Canada. It was. It was once. I mean, Canada has a pretty good track record on the commercial side. Steve Newberg and uh, Cam Sims and uh, Canadian Simulations and all that sort of stuff. And um, in fact, quite a lot of the the main software wargaming companies are based up here uh, right. as well, uh, in in Montreal and and uh, and Vancouver. Um, so there's. It's got a great history of war game in Canada, but the professional side of Wargaming had basically fallen into disrepair as it had in the States. Um, oh, it's
0: been, you I, know. I was about to say, we we worked uh, much better, and it's fascinating to talk to Mitch Reed and Phil and those guys and see uh, the things they've brought back. Because every every service is different, and, and yes. Mitch and I have talked on podcasts about the different culture of Wargaming for me in the Marine Corps versus him in the Air Force. And From day one as a Marine officer, I was raised in a culture of War Gaming. We did tactical decision games. Yeah. We did all kinds of uh, training without troops, toots, or those things. You know, we did all those kind of what we would consider war games, but of course it was way too cool. This was this was tactical. This was not. Yes. you know <laughs> this is really not war gaming, uh, but it was war gaming at its core, and that was interesting for me going through my career to see how easy it was for us to walk into an event and view it as a learning experience and say, okay, mm-hmm. we're going to try to not shape this to our preconceived notions. We want to see does the layout work? Does the strategy work? Does the tactics mm-hmm. work? You know, What What are the takeaways? Um, but you, you talk about uh, the, the wargaming influences. I was always happy that when I went to be a forward air controller and when we started doing our call for fire, we had one of the old school puff boards that had yes. the little smoke puffs that would come up through the yep. boards. You probably remember those. We had one of those. Uh, and that was my favorite little war game was because it was, it was considered training. And I got to sit in there and call for fire and watch little things blow up and smoke come up through the board. And people are like, you're enjoying this way too much. I'm like. It's a game. This is fun. Yeah. Why can't we all have fun and train? Yeah, so, so there's my, a lot of military influences.
1: Yeah, my my last posting, in actual fact, was as chief instructor of our machine gun and reconnaissance school, which is part of the support weapons wing in the UK. And, of course, we had mortars, anti-tanks. Right. And we were co-located um, with um, uh, basically the artillery school and all the Fort Air Observers. So, So we were used right. to having um you know uh, training events uh which sort of verged on the edge of games but until somebody right. said, well, you know, how much how much is going to cost if we mess this up? All right, okay, yeah.
0: we have to we have to actually use. <laughs> All right, this. let's script it. Let's let's get rid of this whole the whole gaming piece <laughs> yeah. to it. Yeah, I I fought that for years as an instructor at Marine Aviation Weapons and Tactics Squadron. you know, how much do we want a game versus how much do we just need to do an exercise to train people? And yes, unfortunately, most of those instructors wanted to game. We wanted to find out how things would work. But yeah. the the flight hour budget and the training budget was for people to prove they could you know use their actual TO weapon or their airplane. So. Well, let's, let's, I I knew we were going to go down a rabbit hole and, and for the, to warn the podcasters, uh, podcast listeners, this may be a long episode. You may be here a while. Uh, We have a lot to talk about and, and we love dropping down rabbit holes, but why did I drag you onto this podcast? So, um, Obviously, Sebastian Bay and I have talked about a lot of things. I'm a huge fan of uh, their Georgetown University Wargaming Society. I mm. uh, really enjoyed getting the socks beat off of me by their uh, members of their society when I decided to show up and and play his uh, littoral uh, regiment game there. Yeah, uh, But I, I saw your discussion about different types of morale in wargaming by domain. Mm. So breaking it down to land, sea, and air and how the three innately have different morale impacts. And then if you're going to put that in a war game, which yes, you should, that's the foot stomper of the day. Uh, how do you do that? And and yeah. what are the, the key differences? Because I think most of us are products of land war gaming and maybe a little bit of Naval, but yeah. when we think morale, we think of squad leader. We think of, you know, victory game series, the combat ser- or ambush series. We think of, yeah. of direct morale impacts. We think of even in the sci-fi world, like Warhammer 40 K units, break, they route, they may or may not rally, and then they become combat ineffective. Um, but in that discussion with Sebastian, you all really painted that that the three domains have different morale to start with. Uh, and so let's just talk a real quick summary of the differences between land, naval, and then air morale in, in y'all's view.
1: Yeah, the-, the- the, the lecture that I gave, or oh, sorry, the talk that I gave with uh, Brianna Fraseviet uh, from my shop, uh, we both work in the same section, um, uh, came about first of all because Sebastian, I love Sebastian, he said, I want you to do something on GUWS, you pick the subject. Went, ah, man, no better
0: than that yeah <laughs> that's a tough one that
1: one because you really, know you can talk about anything really to do with wargaming but the morale bit of it was part of a previous lecture which i'd given in connections about the fact that wargaming generally speaking doesn't represent morale very well and, and a couple of other things like surprise and fog of war and stuff and there was a whole host of different things that was on connections north but um uh, but But when I sat down with Brianna, we said, okay, so morale then, what's it all about? And are we building it into our games well enough to represent the real situations that we find from history sometimes aren't represented? Uh, in a war game, uh, you know, and and you'll get you know units fighting to the last man, which nobody ever does unless you're Japanese, by the way. Um, and uh, you know, and 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 uh, you know the the pros and cons of having high morale at a tactical level, um, but then how an operational level can also. Um, you know, influence how good a tactical unit is before it even gets to the, you know, gets on the ground. And as we were doing it, in actual fact, it's precisely what you said. I was looking at ground factors uh, primarily. You know, I was going, okay, you know, flanking. We know flanking is, you know, very effective. we know, that indirect fire is very effective at breaking morale. You know, and, and we're looking at all of the various facets of what broke morale. But as I was doing it, I was thinking, hang on, I'm from the Joint Warfare Centre here. What breaks Naval morale, and you know, right. I, I'm a huge naval fan. I, I actually write naval wargames rules as well for you know convoy actions and stuff. But, but um, the more I started thinking about it, I thought, man, this is totally different. This is totally different in a ground domain. In the ground domain, I, um, you know, morale basically is broken and achieved by a number of factors, and you can list them out. And, and almost any set of Wargames rules, whether they're commercial or, or professional, will have the factors that do that. So, you know, fatigue, training, experience, blah, blah, blah. At sea, though, if you are a sailor, yeah, and you're 99% of the sailors on a ship, you have zero choice as to where you go and what you're doing. The captain of the ship exactly. <laughs> and the and the Commodore of a task force says, We're gonna do this, and and the guy says, Yeah, you know, Frank Speed and Steer course, you know, zero six zero and away you go. And the vast majority of the people on a ship, the all they can do is do their jobs as best they can, and then at the end of the right. day they're either sunk or they've sunk the other guys or they've disengaged or whatever it might be with damage. And you could argue that the worst morale for a naval uh, team is is when, you know, they have to um, deal with uh, damage control, fires and this sort of th- stuff, you know. I'm, Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a veteran of the sort of Falklands area. I've actually met people from the Sheffield, you know. I've drunk beer with guys from the Sheffield when they were burning and they were saying, you know, it was really then that you found out who had high morale or motivation and, and you know, whatever and who didn't oh, yeah. because – you know, the whole thing is really gone to hell in a
0: handbasket at this point. So, so it's yeah, I've very- done Naval Damage Control School and I never want to do that for real. No, yeah. thank you. And, and yeah. my
1: son's in the Canadian Navy and he's done it. And he said, you know, he said, it's, it's, it's traumatic. And so it should be because yeah. it gets you ready for the real <laughs> yeah, thing.
0: <laughs> it does. yeah. Yeah. That, I've always said that and SEER School are the two best training evolutions I've gone through and you don't ever want to experience them. You don't want to know what goes on in them and it, Prepares you to say, "I'm never going to get put in that situation." So,
1: yeah, I've done escape an evasion uh, interrogation. So again, I'm the same same detail. Yeah, I've done it once. Like that's cool. Sorry, I'm too old to do that now. But exactly. To, exactly. But morale for a ship and morale for a task force is completely different as well. Um, so, so, so in the sea domain. Um, so the dawning realisation as we, as we prepared the lecture for, for GUWS was it's different. And then when I started looking at AIR, I went, hang on, that's different again. And, and it's different by era as well, of course. Obviously, if you go back to you know, World War I, World War II, and then through to the sort of more modern era, if you like, through, up through Vietnam to the present day. So, so morale for, um, for air units and air individuals, and again, the ratio is even tighter between the people who are actually fighting. Uh, sorry, the, the ratio is even larger between the people who are actually doing the fighting and the rest of the organization. So, you know, I, th- I guess it's, you know, maybe, I don't know, one in a thousand people in the Air Force actually right. fly something. Or maybe it might be one in two thousand, depending on the size and, and, and shape of your, of your Air Force. But, but for, for, for pilots and, uh, you know, Wizos or, you know, radio, RIOs, whatever, whatever you want to call them, um, you know, uh, two men or 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 larger crews in World War Two in bombers, you know, B-17s and Lancasters and stuff like this, morale was completely different. Um, you know, and Absolutely. multiple missions. I think we forget that because our modern day concept of war and it is now being shaken by ukraine for sure but our modern day concepts of war certainly in the 21st century were you know short sharp shock uh, you know there's a storm type things morale didn't really come into it if you're on the winning side there was no attritional fatigue type morale you know 100 100 hours i think desert storm lasted <laughs> so something like yes. that it was not, not much longer than that um, so, but but the air campaign lasted a little bit longer than that. It should it should you know, but but not months and not years. Right. Whereas some of the, the the bomber crews and fighter pilots in World War Two, you know, quite literally fought from 1939 to you know 1945. That's pretty close to six years. Um, oh yeah. And so, so so the morale. And fatigue and nutrition, all this sort of stuff are completely different for each one of the three domains.
0: Well, and this is a good segue into one of the points that you had made that morale and motivation are two different things. And a lot of times people get those confused. And it's especially in a world of short conflicts, a mm-hmm. world of without the fatigue of of long operations, that gets confused. And I think, at least in the modern era where people see those two brought separately – is in counterinsurgencies where you see morale Mm. versus motivation. You can have highly motivated units, Mm. well-trained, highest breed of corps, but do not have high morale on month five of a six-month counterinsurgency or for even the Army guys that I worked, you know, month 12 of a 13-month deployment. Um, They could be the best unit. That doesn't necessarily mean they have the highest morale because there's been so many cumulative factors, Mm-hmm. Um, that have that have worn down, and, and, and we'll talk about it in a bit. Uh, we, like you said, we always think of morale as all this list of factors that are positives and negatives that that stack up, and that's an important part to it. Um, but also understanding that those aren't all just at the tactical level; those are there are operational inputs, there are strategic inputs that all add up to those those bonuses and minuses that sit on your stack. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and, and and I mentioned that in the in the in the Georgetown um, uh, brief that you know motivation is an individual thing. You're motivated or I'm motivated at mile X of a run, all right? You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna get past right. this or whatever it might be. I'm gonna get up that hill. I'm gonna whatever paddle that boat to you know wherever it might be, whatever that is. That's an individual, almost a sport, sporting like motivation to complete the task. Morale, if you look at the definition of it in most military uh, sort of uh, formats, um, usually is more encompassing of a unit, you know, a group of people. Um, and it's, it's exactly. it, you know, the NATO definition actually is, is you know, to continue the mission in the face of adversity, losses, uh, and confusion and this sort of stuff. So, so morale is right. m- a, a, a broader concept um i think uh you know you, you have individuals that are motivated within a unit for sure you have individuals that are motivated in life um but the morale of a country the morale of a, uh, you know uh an air wing the morale of a squadron or a flight and and again as you said before i think that it's very different between small unit morale, uh, you know, cohesion of a of a fight or a small group, and right. then moving up to like the operational level where you're saying, this is set to a certain extent that there are more variables, but different variables that affect um, you know each of the three domains. Um, so, so for the army, for example, at the operational level. Um, you know, uh, longevity, experience, training, these sorts of things are pretty perennial. You see that going, you know, going on. And good equipment and good okay. plans and success or failure on the battlefield can, can swing it. Um, in the air at the operational level, I think we're talking more about um, uh, things like, have we got the better weapons system? Have you know, how, how well maintained are our ships? Uh, do we trust the maintenance side of the house? Uh, am I right. am I rotating? If I'm part of a squadron in a long-term conflict at the operational level, is my squadron being given rest and recuperation right. and an ability to retrain and replace losses and so on and so forth? Um, and and at a strategic level, of course, um, you know morale is set to a certain extent by the the example of the senior uh, leaders in terms of making sure they're not being asked to do something that they know they can't and, exactly. and uh, you know and, and and there are many examples of that um, there's a lot in in world war 2 where air groups Um, and, uh, air units, for example, on, on aircraft carriers were being asked to carry out missions that were virtually impossible, but they'd have a go anyway, only once or twice. (laughs) And then after that, they'd say, no, 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 we (laughs) have to learn from experience. So, um, so I think there's a straight line correlation between morale and experience in the air. I think I think once an air force learns what it can and can't do, it's very, it's much more careful with its personnel, um, and that's probably to do with unit count uh, as well. You know, an army has lots of individuals, uh, mm. as we're seeing in Ukraine right now. You know, you can you can mobilise three hundred thousand people, give them basic infantry training, and off they go. They'll not be very good, but they can do it um right and let's not forget that ukraine basically conscripted every male between the ages of 18 and 60 when the whole thing kicked yep. off apart from the ones that, that, that left the country with a you know uh, as sort of refugees so you know there's there's a, there's an experience there most of those guys had no more than seven or eight days worth of training
0: exactly well, and, and we've talked about it in, in very technical fields in the military. It's fascinating how morale can can take on a um, – I'm trying to think of the best word because we, we used it in our pre-discussion. Um, but it, it is the reliability and your confidence in the equipment that you're given mm-hmm. um, because – doesn't matter how good of a pilot you are. If it is not, if your airplane is not m- well-maintained, you're going to fly it very well to the crash site, you know, or as we use the example, if, if you are the lead bomber crew and you have to cancel for maintenance and you have to turn around because one of your engines has failed or there's some other catastrophic problem. Mm-hmm. Now someone else is leading. What's, what's the morale influence of those actions and and of those impacts. And that, that in a, in a technical field is, in a way, like having a platoon commander or company commander taken out by a sniper. But it's also different because there's very much a, I had no control. There's nothing I could have done. It was literally this one wrench turner or this one widget failed or, you mm. know, something conspired other than the enemy's action um, to, to put a morale impact on me.
1: Yeah, and, and I think I think you're right. I think you can you can draw Venn diagrams, um, as, as, as you and I chatted about before, you can draw Venn diagrams, between uh, you know uh, 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 men, machines and material and and uh, if you're like sort of planning and processes if you like you want to put those all if they're all circles and they intersect. If you've got if you've got really good um, you know well-trained crews, then your morale will go up. OK, even if right. even if they're not flying the best piece of kit, but marry that <laughs> with, you know, good material with a weapon system that is at least compatible with the enemies in it, preferably better or some sort of advantage. And it might not be. It, it's an interesting one for air. Um, the 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 difference between, say, for example, ground units, weapons and naval units, weapons is usually pretty marginal, you know a rifle's right. a rifle's a rifle uh, you know uh, i would prefer to have a 762 versus a 556 5. because i'll shoot you from exactly. 200 meters further <laughs> uh, that's just maybe an infantry um, but but um, but you know um, uh, tanks uh, everybody goes oh you know the you know major, you know tigers versus shermans or whatever it might be well tanks are tanks at the end of the day. And if you get close enough, you'll penetrate anything, Uh, you know, if you're talking about about this sort of stuff, you know, um, but, but in the air, um, you know, there are many, many, many facets, you know, more, you know, better better than I do in terms of, you know, um, power to thrust ratio, uh, wing loading, am I maneuverable? Have I got, you know, um, you know, have I got a longer range and endurance, to be able to stay in an area to complete my mission versus the enemy who can only be there for a little while and then have to go away. Um, so you know, there's many examples from World War Two where high high morale units, very experienced. For example, German uh, fighter pilots who'd fought in Spain and Poland and over France and were now fighting in say the Western Desert or over Malta or wherever it might be, massively yeah. experienced, and their planes. Had up until about 1941 been pretty much the best on the block, you know, uh, Messerschmitt Smith uh, right. 109s and probably one90s and stuff like this. But then, as soon as the Allies start to get reasonably trained people, but in better in better planes, then now we've right. got a material, slightly material advantage there. Okay, starting to creep in, and then of course you've got. The whole of that logistics chain behind you, Um, you know, how many aircraft can you put holes in and still repair them and still get them up the next day, sortie
0: rates and this sort of thing. Um, And, and, uh, I'm glad you brought up logistics and, I, and I'm glad you brought up sortie rates because the problem is in, in the discussion with our UK counterparts, it is the innate superiority of the Spitfire that won the Battle of Britain and and basically the entire war. has nothing to do with the nuts and bolts of keeping those airplanes flying or actually putting fuel bullets and all the logistics into them. So thank you for that.
1: <laughs> well, well, because I'm not actually from the RAF, you see, I can read these accounts of the Battle of Britain, there, but, uh, but really, hang on, we outnumbered them. Luftwaffe, most of the battle. Yeah. <laughs> don't mention that. Don't mention that. Don't mention that. Don't that's let the
0: it. facts get in the way of history. <laughs> no, that's right.
1: But but all of these factors, I guess, really where I'm coming from here is that all of these factors, in much the same as in the land domain, much the same in the naval domain, but different factors affect the morale and motivation, the motivation of the individuals, but the morale of the units right. in a, in an air uh, environment. And um, I think you and I, you know, we pulled together a little table, you know, experience, uh, weapon or aircraft uh, superiority. Um, right. At a tactical level, um, shock and surprise. And perhaps at an right. operational level, you can think Yom Kippur, uh, sorry, uh, 67, you know, six day war type things. Right. Um, uh, and, and you can also, you can correlate it a little bit with naval warfare. Um, naval morale at an operational level, uh, tends to have been shaken, if not broken by the loss of, say, for example, a, a particular flagship, um, or, right. or, 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 a, or, a particularly heavy defeat in one battle. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm going to quote the Falklands again, but you know, the sinking of the Belgrano basically put the Argentinian fleet into port. After that, they went, hang on, if we go out there, we'll probably lose something else. They probably wouldn't have done, but psychologically, they went, ah, we're not going to go and play that game again. Conversely, the Argentinian Air Force threw themselves day after day after day after day (laughs) you know, at the very limit of their range, but had virtually no turnbacks and did not um, cease to press uh, you know, an attack into the landing areas and, and later on, you know, in, in various other locations on the islands. So so um, the, they, they were at a disadvantage in terms of equipment. They were at a disadvantage in terms of missile systems. They were at a disadvantage in terms of intelligence, if you want to go, you know, to that, uh, you right. know, do right. I know where the enemy is? What's my SA? Um, but they didn't stop coming, Uh, and you know there's a reason they won the world cup it's there's there's a little you know uh argentinians are
0: by default um as they're by default hardy people and and people have forgotten that i think a lot yeah you know how their how their culture is and what a what a bootstrap kind of culture it is and it's it's just rooted in a very um border agrarian frontier kind of, kind of world. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's not, the gaucho spirit. Not skirt. giving in. Right yeah, it's the gaucho yeah, It skirt. is, it is. Yeah. Well, you, you, you really alluded to it here and I want to dwell on it a moment because w- games, if they simulate morale, tend to generalize what the route is. Mm. And, and we kind of laughed that that's very different in each of the domains and most people's image is, is from the land domain, that when you break that unit, it ceases to be combat effective, whether they just go to ground and surrender or they leave the board and route. Uh, but obviously we've discussed in a naval battle, you don't have a vote. You you're going wherever the captain says you're going. And if he says you guys are going to the last torpedo, the last shell, and the last watertight door, that's what's going to happen. Mm. You you may have very low morale as you're fighting that ship, but but there's not a whole lot of a route there. So, so fail, failing a morale check on a ship looks very different than for an infantry unit.
1: Correct. And I think failing a morale check for an, for an air unit it, it is also, um, you know, it, it different again. Um, exactly. So, so if uh, route is relatively speaking rare. Um, if you look at, if you look at history, um, you know, uh, complete disintegrations of units and armies and so on can happen, but generally speaking, it's a pretty rare occurrence. Um, what tends to happen is people just sort of stop fighting and, um, and the best, by the way, I'll, I'll, I'll quote a book here, a book by Leo Murray, which you may have read called Brains and Bullets. Um, right. um, and it's 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 very much a, a fact that when units start to not do things, they either flee, in other words, they, they, they just start right. doing the mission and move away in some way, shape, or form. That can happen in, in any one of the three domains. Um, right. or they'll freeze. You know, they'll they'll continue doing the mission, but they won't be able to react, if you like, to what's happening around them. They're just sort of going through the motions. Um and then there's another one who uses uses four F's. Um, what's the other one? or fight! You know, if you're cornered, the MRI's right. going, well, I'll still fight you uh, because because <laughs> the 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 the, um, uh, the the alternative to that is just being you know potentially being murdered uh, if you're like to shot there. Right. Um, and um, and and the other one is fussing. He calls it fussing, where basically people <laughs> sort of try to do stuff but it's not really combat right. it's it's not really very combat effective but it, nobody's going to know that i'm not actually doing my mission now right in the, in right. the air that's really quite tough since the days of radar and awax and gci and so on and so forth because um and even i would i would perhaps go as far back as the invention of the gun camera and um, so mm. so you know when you when you now are able to look at gun footage You'd be able to see whether or not a person, when they came back to base, a fight. I'm talking specifically about fighters here, right? But but even the flash um, cameras on um, the Lancasters uh, in World War Two, you know, bombers and B-17s as well. You know, lots of film footage of whether or not they hit in the target, whether or not they actually even made it to the target, which is actually quite right. interesting. So so I think that I think that a route in an air. Um, Uh, scenario is if you have the ability to disengage because you realize that you're disadvantaged and or you really don't want to press it because your morale is is down you know that that positive column of morale has been decreased by i don't know fatigue multiple missions losses weather (laughs) weather yeah absolutely i mean uh, the, the the turn back rating for a good raid in World War 2 in Europe uh, was you know between 5 to 6%. That was a really good that was a that was a fantastic if you managed to get 95% of your aircraft to get over Germany you were doing really well. And that was because of the maintenance right. and the wear and tear and so on. If you now look at the at the uh, the maintenance rates of modern aircraft and modern UAVs uh, you know, I think it was in the congressional hearing on the F thirty five a couple of uh, a couple of years ago that you know it was at a it was regarded as good if you could get fifty percent of them up, fifty to sixty oh, yeah. percent was was good, and that's that's not because that's not because the maintenance teams aren't you know clever blokes they are, but the machines are inherently more complex, and there's more systems Absolutely. you know it's a combination of systems and systems, but but back to the back to the route um you know i think in in air you don't route you find some reason to not go there
0: exactly and and we we discussed that and that's a there's a fascinating difference with aviation and when you in a sense cross the line of departure and you're now mm. you know as we say across the fence uh, across the blue line that there's there's a lot less options to turn back at that point there's still a few until you find yourself either in that aerial engagement or over the target mm. or in the enemy's actually their the weapons engagement zone of their defenses but i think that's an important point that a lot of people when that morale fails it has to fail early or the decision to make the 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 choice to leave the fight has to happen early hmm. because once you're committed it, you fall back into the, I'm, I'm pinned in a corner. I have to fight my way out of this. You know, we, we were talking about examples uh, and, you know, the F-16s over Baghdad and, and you've got stroke flight where, you know, I, I, as I was saying, from my perspective, the poor Dash 4 pilot who is being engaged by multiple Iraqi Sams has seen one of his wingmen get shot down, is out of airspeed, out of ideas, and you could hear it in his voice. His morale is extremely low, but mm-hmm. he knows that he has to leave he has to get out of that target area and so it's a it's a very interesting piece and I'm I would be curious I I know some people that were in similar flights but be curious what his morale was once he left the target area and was able to stop decompress put himself together land the plane that is that's the real test of what the the morale effect was not not him and, and the individual action of leaving the target area that was a that was a survive or die kind of kind of mentality there
1: yeah, and I and I think air because air combat, you know, people say it's quick, but it isn't really. You've got you've got usually you've got a lot of ingress time and usually you've got a fair bit of you know, egress time as well to think about what just right. happened and to think about what's going to happen. Um, right. so so I think um I think that's um you know, the, this, that speed of decision in terms of, oh, you know, I, I'm not going to do that because that's too risky or whatever. I think um, there's a chat called Lord Moran, I mentioned it in, the, in, the, in the Georgetown thing, who, who characterized um, courage um, as being like a bank account um, in as much as you can keep on drawing from it to a certain extent, but then you once you get into deficit, it starts to get really tricky and and i think if you look at if you look at air combat um that drawing on or putting something into the bank of courage um uh is is done at a unit level uh, to begin with right. uh, but then you'd and and you know rotating squadrons in and out you know the um, the the amount of missions that were undertaken say for example over vietnam because i mean there were some some pilots and some bomber crews, uh, third pilots, and, and bomber crews in, in Vietnam who did mission after, mission after mission after mission after mission, and then came back for a second tour and so on and so forth. But that was pretty rare. Right. In general, people did a year and then they got out. All right, or got out. You know, they were rotated back to the states or wherever it might be. So I think the I think that morale in air um, operational levels. Um, is is to do with unit rotation and replacements and training and 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 th- these type of factors in a tactical situation it's uh, that sets the scene so if, if you like when the board game starts or when the, the the game on the table starts the morale condition of those pilots and and the, the people who are actually flying the planes are, are, in fact, I would say more so the leaders, you know, fight leaders and, and squadron leaders right. and so on and so forth, has been pretty – has been shaped by what has happened in the campaign or in the timeline leading up to that. Right. Then you've got the actual well, war game or the game or the mission or whatever it might be, and that is much more shaped by circumstances, you know, fast losses, situational awareness loss, jamming. All of these sorts of things, anything that makes people not sure about what's happening tends to decrease morale, I think, very quickly in air games. And, and well, I'll use the combat. example.
0: Oh, go ahead. Yeah. And I'll use the example of in Bandits 2, you have situational initiative. And so it is that combination of uh, situational awareness, but morale effects and the unknown and. All of those things that wear on your decision-making ability, because as you said in all the Fs, one of those is freeze or fidget or whatever yeah. you know their their, uh, their term for find a useless task to do. And I've I've yes. I've been that person myself when when you are so overwhelmed that you cannot concentrate on anything but the most mundane task, and that's what you do, even though it may not contribute to the mission. <laughs> but you can think about it, uh, you know. So there, I, I think there's. There's something to be said at the at the tactical level for for those things piling on and taking away your ability to properly react. They're not causing you to route. They're not causing you to turn back, but it is weighing upon your own personal decision matrix so much that you're not thinking at the top of your game and you're not perceiving the enemy or the battlefield the way you should.
1: And and there are many historical examples, and and you know I've got a, I've got quite literally a library full of books about about uh, you know air combat and air campaigns and so on and so forth, which I used as research for pilots too. But one of the things that came out was um, uh, you know strong and hard for me were were the fact that um, you know uh, losses sudden, immediate losses yes. can break. And and I think I mentioned before, I'm a huge fan of Lee Brimigan Woods' uh, uh, war games, you know, uh, uh, Burning Blue, Absolutely. Downtown. and If I could
0: find any of them other than Red Storm, <laughs> I would have bought them all, but they're only on eBay for multiple hundreds of dollars. So I don't like his games that much.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I bought them all as he was doing them because I was fascinated. But he has this type of situation... Um, built into most of those games, where flights will become just combat ineffective. They might have only lost one right. plane, but if that plane happened to be the flight leader, you can guess that the rest of the guys who are probably not as experienced, certainly in these historical ones, you know, are not going oh, yeah. to be re- able to react as well. And it's very interesting. I was talking to some of our RCAF guys up here, the Canadian Air Force. We're doing a war game for them about man-on-man teaming. And um, one of the things that came out was the fact that uh, in in live, virtual, and constructive war games, you know, professional war games, the the effect okay. of the loss of somebody in a simulator as part of your team has. Not the same effect as the fact that you've just seen somebody no. have their plane quite literally disintegrated—you know, half a mile to your right or left or whatever it
0: is. Oh uh, yeah, you know, cause you, well, and that was one sexy. of uh, one of the things we, yeah, you know, one of the things we learned a lot was when there's no fear of death. In some of these events and there's Mm -hmm. no repercussion, people will either push too far or they won't react the same way they would in combat. And we saw it all the time with our forward air controllers that simulators were great for them. It was a great way to improve upon their training, but until they were out there on top of the hill in the desert with a radio and an airplane dropping a two thousand pound bomb that could end up on them if they did it yes. wrong. Then all of a sudden, everybody was a lot tighter with how they did business. and mm-hmm. and so it's it's that combination of of different methodologies and understanding that um how people will behave in some of these situations. Mm-hmm. you just you can't simulate until you're there. You can get pretty close. Yeah. It was always one of my biggest biggest arguments with uh, at the time when General Mattis was uh, head of Joint Forces command and he said we can just simulate everything it's like a hollywood movie i'm like no sir it's not cuz i'm not scared in a hollywood movie i might jump might yes. jump when the guy comes out yes. from behind the, the, the screen with the with the uh, with the chainsaw but i'm not scared for my life on that hill dropping 2000 pound bombs i might be scared for my life depending who's dropping them
1: <laughs> and, and and
0: interestingly enough when you look at some of the great sort of aerial disasters
1: um, of, oh, yeah. of of history, you know, whether it's Schweinfurt, uh, you know, the bearings raids, or whatever it might be, um, the the only way in which um, air forces learn uh, to change doctrine and change tactics is, unfortunately, usually. By real losses, you know, training Absolutely. and exercises before a war don't necessarily, I mean, they, they may give you some doctrinal, um, uh, steers, you know, like, like we, if we've got stealth, maybe we want to shoot BVR all the time, blah, blah, blah. It'll give you some, it'll give you some generalities, but until, right. until the. Um, You know, the losses start mounting up and missions start to not be performed um, because of either losses or or outbreaks or whatever it is. And And we're seeing that in Russia right now. You know, the Russian Air Force basically wiped out the Ukrainian Air Force in the first sort of 48 hours, basically, although, you know, we don't want to mention that. But basically, they, they you know, they- <laughs> No one they, ever mentions that. No, no, don't mention that. It's okay. But then they realized <laughs> that if they flew over mainland Ukraine because their SEAD, you know, missions, uh, you know, uh, uh, suppression enemy air defense missions weren't being effective because the Ukrainians were being pretty clever at hiding their SAM systems by not revealing them, you um, you know, uh, they eventually went, oh, hang on, this is crazy. Why would I, why do I actually need to fly over enemy territory here? Because all I'm doing is losing people. And so, exactly. and so, and exactly. that that's not a break in morale. That's a sensible tactical decision to not do what's killing lots of your guys.
0: Um, Well, I I laugh because we made the same mistake in Vietnam. Why? Why did we transition from a mid cap to a bar cap? We realized you don't have to cap over the airfield. And in fact, if you cap over the airfield, there's probably Sam's and AAA that are going to wait for you the next time you do it. Yeah. So you're going to set off somewhere further away. Draw the bandits somewhere else, draw them away from the strike package or, or push them away from the strike package, but don't cap over the top of the threat. That's how you get killed. Yes.
1: And, and, and I think um, I think you probably saw the, um, the, the slide that I put up in Georgetown. I think it was something like 70 odd percent of all US Air Force losses in Vietnam were to, to, to AAA.
0: Oh, yeah. You know, you know, well, and that's been that's strategically like, misinterpreted in games forever. You know, yeah, it's, sounds it's didn't they, actually they look care at that number. But morale-wise exactly. and tactics-wise, morale-wise, they impact. were... Well, and and that's a very important piece to, to distinguish. And I, I pick on Dan Verson from DVG Games because as Phil and I have worked on Fulcrum Leader and Eagle Leader, there's things we've had to kind of decompose and wonder why he did a certain way. But mm. because of the, the takeaway from the air war in North Vietnam, that triple a downed so many airplanes it is too deadly in most of the leader the jet leader series games uh while they forget that the sams did have a huge morale impact because they were an area denial weapon in that sense they yes. they carried this 14 mile bubble with them that went everywhere and you just didn't go into it uh but the the problem is you you misapply that into a game and all of a sudden you have a KS 19 howitzer that is automatically causing you stress and killing you 50% of the time, which isn't really what happened. No. It didn't kill 50% of the flights that flew over. But no. if you flew unsuppressed without maneuver, without jamming into a radar guided heavy triple a, your, your days were numbered, you know? And yes. so it's, it's those fascinating nuances. And and what we talked about before
1: in terms of, uh, you know, the, 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 what you mentioned before about route, um, Let's not forget, at an operational level, um, an air force can often disengage its squadrons from yes. from an enemy in order to be able to either a help them recuperate and regenerate, and you know repair uh, repair the you know the aircraft if they've been damaged and so on and so forth. But I mean, the, you know, the um, uh, but but sometimes it's just a case of all right, we're not winning this one. We really aren't aren't winning it the way we're doing it. We need to scarp it. And you know, and we saw that we saw that in uh, we saw it in Vietnam, where uh, you know North Vietnamese jets flew quite literally into China, and you know, and and right. could not be pursued into there. We saw it. We saw it in Gulf War One, where about half of the Iraqi air force said, "Ah, this is silly. Let's," you know, we go.
0: Decide to become the Iranian air force.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Iran. we were just fighting them five minutes ago, but it's okay. It's still better yeah. that we put them there. It's, okay. uh,
0: it's not here. It's yeah.
1: not here. And Kosovo, you mentioned Kosovo. You know, uh, Mig's Mig's that you know just went. And Head. You know, they were putting their railway well, tunnels and all sorts of stuff in other way. There's
0: there's a great uh two books that just came out from uh Hellion Press that I have that uh they literally talk about the ban on flying that happened after I believe it was the fourth MiG twenty nine shootdown. Mm-hmm. And they just the the Yugoslav Air Force or, or the Serbian Air Force just said, it's not worth it. It is yeah. it is not worth yeah flying those assets. Now we will not achieve anything. And then one of their squadron commanders, I think about 20 days later said, you know what, I'm going to go for one more mission. And he got shot down and then they banned all flying together. They're like, there's no point. There's, there is no reason to get airborne because they will find you and they will kill you. It's more important to use those assets at another time. So,
1: and, and, and we're back to that air superiority, air supremacy, you know, air dominance sort of situation. (laughs) That's, 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 historically very rare um that there's only been a couple yes. of instances of it and as you say and, and i thought it was interesting when you said there about you know sam's moving around in terms of the morale effect you know with s400s and s300s that's hundreds of kilometers of bubble oh, yeah. now uh, you know unless oh, you yeah. happen to be stealthy so so the 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 possibility of getting dinged by an advanced air defense system, especially, you know, with the density that you see around sort of China, Taiwan, you know, anywhere in, in those sort of areas now, um, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty high in, in actual fact. I think that, yeah, I think-
0: Well, I, I use the example from, from one of our pilots in Kosovo who talked about the morale, morale impact of unlocated SAMs. Yes. And so there were obviously a lot of SAMs that were not out there, not, not known where they were. You didn't realize you were in a threat uh, weapons engagement zone until the missile came off the ground. And, and hopefully your radar warning gear also told you that. As he told us, he said the worst day of his life was when he looked down and saw the, uh, the Serbian SA-3 come off the launcher and start climbing up at him. He said mm. the best day of his life was when the missile turned and tracked his lead. <laughs> <laughs> so- <laughs> exactly. So, so, so it was lead, and I've even told the story that as much as I make fun of the F sixteen CJ uh, seed guys, we loved them. We you know we we wouldn't have gone in country without them. But my happiest day was after all of us had been shot at, and we were really running out of country. We dropped our bombs. We were trying to get out of there as fast as possible. And I heard him behind us saying, Razor 5-1 defending, you know, Singer 2. I'm like, thank God you guys are finally getting shot at because we've been taking all the shots today. So uh, it, it's it's one of those moments where you, you feel bad for the other guy, but you're like, at least it's not me that's the guy in the hot seat now. And and
1: we're back to that sort of, uh, that, that sort of perennial point, which is a morale shaker, if not a breaker, then a morale shaker, which is... Lack of their say. so if you've got good GCI or you've got good AWACS cover, um, you know, from miles away, you know, from I mean, as far as you know, AWACs are concerned, you know, well, you know, the further they are away and able to do their job the better, (laughs) because they're big big vulnerable targets. But um, but to lose that either either instantly or or generally speaking, not really have confidence in it. I think is a factor in morale, um, and I've and, and I built, built it into bandits. I mean, th- I, I just read very recently, reread read um, Martin Middlebrook's book about Hamburg, the radar on Hamburg, um, and it was the very first time that window was used. Um, so right. they'd had window for a while. They tried it over the UK. They went, yeah, okay, this works. It'll jam the radars. But they were very – they were really didn't want to use it because it was going to blow the secret, if you like, as soon as they used it, because it would be exactly. all over Germany. So they kept it until they had a really big raid, you know, over Hamburg and a really big target. But if you read the the accounts from the, um, the German fighter controllers, who, you know, generally speaking, had a pretty good air picture. They knew what was going on, where the raids were going, and so on and so forth. That first couple of days when they used window, it was... It, they was they were set the saint of the fighters land we don't we don't know what's yeah. going on um you know we have no idea where the bomber stream is we have no idea if you're going to be you know uh, getting caught by intruders whatever it might be we you know we just don't know what's going on and their default set not the default setting the set you know their, their reaction to that was right, guys just get on the ground until we figure this out. Or go far yeah. away until we figure this out. Go land right. over there for a bit, refuel, and then we'll see if we can figure it out. And that lasted for about four or five days. But the shock factor, um, uh, now, you know, Clausewitz, I hate quoting Clausewitz, people yeah. should <laughs> it. But he said that surprise <laughs> is a transient factor. Yes. Uh, you know, it, it yes. doesn't last forever. It lasts for a very short period of time, and then people will figure stuff out. Um, the Classic examples. Other classic examples of that are um, the fighter air controllers on the um, on the carrier groups in the Pacific in World War II. Right. To begin with, it was an absolute mess, complete mess. Nobody was able to control fighters. Nobody was able to direct fighters. But gradually, as time went on, they changed their system within the uh, you know within the CIC, I guess, to a certain extent anyway, with the air control right. uh, bit. And and then as soon as they did that um the morale of the fighter squadrons on the carriers went up and up and up and up and up because it went okay i'm now being vetted onto something you know this is not going to be a suicide mission they're, they're not vectoring <laughs> me you know below a whole bunch of zeros um they're telling me what right. height to be at which direction to be at and so on and so forth so so that has a huge morale effect um you know battle of britain I think I told you the story about I'm from the northeast of England, and the Germans actually tried to attack from Norway um, uh, only once. And the the hurricane squadron that was scrambled to meet them over the North Sea Found that they were actually outnumbered about two to one by the German escorts, <laughs> and uh, the 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 flight commander had a stutter. famously had a stutter, and his wing his uh his second flight commander the you know the uh, said to him, uh, "You know, can you see them?" And he said, "Yes, I can see them." He said, "Well, you know, what are we going to do?" And he said, "I don't know. I'm trying to f- fucking figure it out." <laughs> and <laughs> but, you know, exactly this wasn't this wasn't morale uh this wasn't his morale going it was the fact that it was like oh hang on i've now seen them and that you know his his radar coverage out that far was minimal he was getting no direction at all right it was a, it was a pretty much a miracle in the weather uh, as to whether or not he could actually even see the, the target so when he saw them it was the shock the shock of the appearance of them actually being in the right yeah. place and he was at the right place at the right time
0: you have a very present
1: morale shock
0: yeah well well, and and i've seen firsthand we we talked uh when we did the the pre-discussion for this we talked a lot about the influence in the aggressor and adversary communities of morale and how that that works into everything. Hmm. And I saw it firsthand many times as an instructor, when we would use our US tactical advantage and take away the GCI or the AIC of the bandits. And, yeah. and based on their tactics, they were so adherent to that, that it was a morale detractor to them hugely. And there were numerous times that the bandits would come into land and, and I'd be there as one of the instructors and they would look at me and go, why do we even go flying? We orbited around, couldn't hear anything, and you just turned it and shot us visually. You know, they are like were we a couple million dollar training aids? I go, yes, yes. We were validating that you had zero SA. Your morale <laughs> was at the lowest point, <laughs> yes. and you let yourself get bounced. So yeah. but but it's it's one of those it's a it's a cumulative morale and fatigue thing. You can only stay at a heightened sense of alert for so long, and even on a combat air patrol. When you know it's an exercise and you know the enemy is out there and they're gonna bounce you, and you know hmm. in this sense the student's you know wave of attack aircraft is coming, you it's just hard to stay sharp the whole time and stay at the top of your game, even as an aggressor pilot, and they get worn down over time and, and get bounced. And this and I think that's a really interesting point, Doug. The the ability
1: of experienced, combat experienced Uh, aircrew to pass on knowledge and key facets uh we talked about doctrine uh you know through the ages in in the air and how it has a huge effect on both the survivability and therefore the experience and morale of aircrew so in world war one you know oswald bulger uh, you know di- you know basically figured out fighter tactics you know for 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 the era exactly. <laughs> but his main contribution wasn't the fact that he figured it figured it out and was shooting down you know british planes left right and center um but but that he passed it on to the other members of his squadron and you know including rick toffen for example and is, is, is there, there's right. one example um but you know it was the being able to pass on you know uh Never attack into the. Uh, you know, always look out for the Hun in the sun. Uh, you know, there's these little right. little <laughs> phrases that were passed around the squadrons. There wasn't any particular. There was no after-action reports. There were no lessons learned right. teams. These were guys who were. I, I mean, in World War One, they were pr- pretty much figuring it out as they went along. Anyway, uh, you know, every every facet of aerial warfare. But by the time you got to World War Two, um. People had realized, I think, that having an experienced um, a squadron leader or a flight leader who was able to train the rest of the members of that flight or an experienced um, bomber um, pilot, uh, very very often right. uh, one of the things that people don't realize that it is in, that in World War II, bomber crews self-selected. They used to put everybody who just passed the course into a honking great big hangar and say sort yourselves out in the in the cruise. <laughs> That's how it was done.
0: I can't imagine that.
1: <laughs> yeah, they said okay, everybody in there come out and cruise of aid, or whatever it is for the Lancasters and they self-selected. So they went to see people that they knew, but very often the captain of the aircraft was not necessarily the ranking guy. It was the one it was he was the pilot who had the most experience. Um, you know, often it would be a sergeant commanding, you know, officers and the rest of the crew, for example, in a bomber. Um, and that's so, so morale in that instance was being raised by having somebody who knew what they were doing and being able to pass that around within the unit.
0: Well, and I think we talked about a interesting corollary to that is the morale impact of a loss of confidence and not even just a loss of confidence inside a crew or a loss of confidence with the command, the squadron CO, but a loss of confidence with either allied or attached units. And, you know, we talked about bomber crews who would, Recognize the, the tail colors, the nose colors, the wing markings of certain fighter squadrons, and that would be a morale boost because yes. they knew those units stayed with and escorted you in and stuck with you the whole way and would, would escort you out if you were in a wounded bird. Uh, but then there's also the problem that there were sometimes squadrons that were unreliable, and that so that was a negative morale hit when you'd look out and you'd go, Oh, it's that squadron again. I remember they left us last time before we got to the initial point. You yeah. Know.
1: And, 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 or didn't turn up. And, 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 uh, right. Yeah. Well, and, you exactly. Know, didn't make the exactly. rendezvous. You know, everybody's on radio silence. So I'm going to meet you at point X, at time Y. You get there and they're not there. And, and, and I think the, <laughs> um, I think the negative effect of that, um, uh, was mitigated to a certain extent. I think the command structure, certainly in the UK, realized that if you co located or, or, or geographically co located fighter squadrons and bomber squadrons, nice. especially, especially the B 17s flying out of East Anglia, the fighter squadrons that would be with them would come and visit. And they would get to know each other, if not socially, then, you know, sort of outside. Outside of just the missions they were flying, so that you you knew right. that you know that squadron there from the 91st, uh, they were the guys that we drank beer with in the pub down the road in in, uh, <laughs> in um, Basingbourne. I, I know exactly where they were, but um, but you know yeah. so so once that affinity was formed, and I think also that um, you get you get that as a problem as well when you see the Italians and the Germans trying to cooperate, for example over the Mediterranean. Um, right not so much in the pacific because generally speaking the british were fighting in one bit of the pacific the americans were fighting in another bit of the pacific and the japanese were fighting you know they didn't they didn't have any real allies if you like um other than themselves <laughs> um but uh but yeah i think i think coalitions and uh, uh multinational uh, operations uh, can be either really good or really bad for morale, depending on previous experience and the <laughs> amount of training that you've had.
0: Uh, oh, absolutely. And and it's it's fascinating as you talk about units that may not have trained together, but build habitual relationships. Mm-hmm. We were very, very fortunate to have a very aggressive uh, Air Expeditionary Wing CO for the Air Force units that were at Al-Jabber with us at the start of Operation Iraqi Freedom. And even though we had not trained with them, We had not worked with them. The fact that we were co-located and could just go over we would see him in the gym we'd see him in the chow hall mm. we we knew who they were and as you built a relationship when those units would check in by default you treated them differently because you you had a little bit of a of a relationship with those crews sometimes you'd recognize a mission call sign that you you knew who was flying that day uh, and I know especially for us as as marine forward air controllers uh, the the Michigan uh, I believe it was Michigan uh, Air Guard A-10 squadron that was there with us. Uh, they were great. And we really didn't like working with a lot of the other A-10 squadrons, but we liked those guys mm. because we were all in the same base. We'd get together, we'd talk about, debrief the mission afterwards, and there were no egos involved. Uh, so we we felt like we could go out and execute the mission. And and it was, it was good to have that as a uh, joint kind of Air Force and Marine Corps world, because it was, it was funny in, in a sense, some of those Air Force squadrons, we became closer to than Marine squadrons that were not co-located with us. So for Marine squadrons mm-hmm. show up from the carrier or one of the Harrier squadrons to show up from the Gulf, we didn't necessarily treat them unless we knew who they were. We didn't necessarily treat them the same way as even some of the Air Force squadrons that we flew with because we built that, that close and tight relationship.
1: And I think it's also I think that's a really interesting point because in it with a professional, not conscript, not wartime, uh, right. unit mix, um, your ability to be able to get say for example the AWACS to work with the Special Air Defence unit, who then works with right. whatever strike unit it is, and for them to actually work together consistently to the point where they trust each other and you know they they, it almost becomes instinctive um uh you know but but that can be done much uh, much more readily in a smaller um you know peacetime environment to a certain extent that that you know that training can take place whereas i think in in you know, if you look back at the large wars, um, you know, units were quite literally cobbled together um, and and oh, thrown yeah. together, and 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 I don't think we should ever underestimate the hours and hours and hours of training time that were done by, say, for example, the um, uh, you know the Empire Flying Schools, uh, you know, here in Canada, who were training. Air crews up and down in the states were training air crews up to go across to Europe, way before the U.S. got involved. Right. For, you know, three years basically. Um, you know, uh, air crews were being trained by that organisation, um, and and you know and and what is it i think it's the, if you survive the first five missions or something your chance of survival <laughs> went up in world war Two by like 80 percent or something exactly so you exactly. know every hour that they could do interestingly enough the germans never never compromised on that um even when they were getting bombed you know nightly and daily and when their uh, fighter um uh, you know, production was disrupted. It, it never really went down, but it was disrupted a fair bit. They never compromised on the amount of hours that they used for training. And the only time that they had to compromise right. was when they didn't have the fuel. And that was really late in the war. It was like 1944. Up to that point, they never shortcut the training time because they realized they just how vital it was.
0: Oh, well, and, and we've talked about it, that there's, several inputs like that that are confidence building morale inputs that it's your training it's the the Maintenance that goes into it, knowing your maintainers, knowing the command. So, knowing the missions you've been handed, that you're going to be given, yes, a difficult mission, but no one is asking you to do a mission they wouldn't do. Uh, I won't bring it up here, but you and I talked offline about some of the morale suppression that can go on when commanders literally tell you that you shouldn't be flying this mission. Nothing in that country is worth your life. And you say, but, General, you're still sending me in there twice today and two times and three times tomorrow. Um, So, it's 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 fascinating the levels of interaction is from the operational and the strategic level and the decisions made there that the the impacts they have down on, on tactical unit morale. But what, what we haven't talked about is the impact to the conduct of the, the conflict of morale impacts to commanders and staff and in a sense, supporting agencies at the operational and strategic. Because when their morale starts to fail or starts to be degraded, that then has a second or third order consequence on those tactical units because of the level of support they're receiving or the, the information they're being passed.
1: I think, I think you're right. I think some of it's information and I think some of it's also confidence building as well. If you think about World War II air commanders, almost every one of them had been a very experienced combat flyer in World War One. Um, you know, uh, everybody right. laughs at Goering and says, you know that, that, you know his his sort of, uh, you know, matte, you know uh, uniforms and stuff like this. You got to remember that this guy was an actual First World War ace, with something like twenty right. or thirty kills to his credit. So, you know, his credibility with the air crew of the Luftwaffe was huge. So, if he said to them, "Go and bomb these, go and bomb these things over here." Uh, you know, they went, okay, yeah. you know, cause you know what you're doing. And it was the same for park. Trenchard, uh, Lemay—not so much. I'm not sure if he fought in World <laughs> War One. I. I don't think he mm-hmm. did, but he certainly did half a dozen missions. And American Air Force generals, right. in actual fact, it was a, it was judged as a badge of honor if they didn't fly in the lead plane on at least a couple of missions. Um, right. So you know, it was it was a it was a, oh, you must really, you have to do this. So I think there's two things. One is, do you trust at, at a squadron level? At a, You know, a, I'm going to say at a tactical level, do you trust that the leaders who are sending you in, um, you know, know what they're doing and are coming from right. and, and are coming from if you're like your street, they have street cred. OK, <laughs> they would never have used that right. phrase, but they have street cred. Bomber Harris, uh, you know, who sent uh, all of the, uh, you know, the bomber uh, command night raids in. Was absolutely adored by his guys, even though they knew that, you know, a a large percentage of them 25%, I think, of of Bomber Command were shot down and killed or wounded. Um, So, you know, it's a huge loss rate. Uh, But they never questioned Harris's um, logic, his tactics. Um, He never launched a raid in bad weather except for one. Uh, which was a mistake, um, where they lost you know a whole bunch of people to icing and stuff like this. So if the weather wasn't right. good, they didn't yeah. go. If the moon was too high, they didn't go. He kept back um, units from the fight because they hadn't been trained correctly on you know a new piece of kit, uh, you know targeting system or something like this. So knowing that the leadership cares for your survival uh, permeates down. Through the organisation, and I think right. I think I mentioned a really weird little side note: Balbo, who was the commander of the Italian Air Force uh, in World War Two to begin with, and who was. F- a, a huge, like a, a man way ahead of his time. He organised, he organised training for bombing in large numbers. Um, he was an expert in anti-aircraft um, artillery. Um, uh, you know, the um, was was instrumental in getting really good Italian aircraft into the Italian Air Force. You know, fast, manoeuvrable, um, <laughs> all this sort of stuff. A guy who shaped the force. And in the first week that Italy went to war, maybe the second week that Italy went to war, was flying to Benghazi to go and take command of the Italian Air Force, who were about to attack uh, with the Italian army into uh, towards Cairo, uh, you
0: know, in Egypt. Right.
1: He was shot down by his own anti-aircraft gunners over Benghazi Harbour and killed quite tragically. And if you want a real interesting what-if All right. Don't shoot him down and put him into a West, (laughs) uh, you know, Western desert campaign and have a really smart Italian air general commanding the Italians in the Western desert. Whoa. It's completely different.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I think there's, there's a lot of impacts and there's a lot of um, decisions made off of higher commanders morale. And then the, the, follow-on effects of that. And as we talked about, especially in coalitions, that there's times that the commander sees an inability of forces to fight together, an inability of them to even communicate about the most basic things. And that then, in a sense, wears on the morale of the commander because he is less likely to be bold, less likely to put those units together in an operation where they might have to rely on each other, and they might have to very rapidly come up with a counterattack or a counterplan uh, that that they probably won't, because from what has been demonstrated in, in previous actions, those two units don't play well together. Um, and that's – I think it's something, especially in air, where there is so much of – of aviation being a pickup game, who who are the crews that are going to show up to be your tankers? Who are the crews that are giving you AIC GCI? Who are the other fighters that are escorting you? That that when when there is a bad mix in there somehow that weighs heavily on the ability of the commander to to perform those missions as a as a large picture.
1: And and we've talked about it before in terms of how you represent it in hobby wargaming, um, right? You know, and I and I think you can represent that type of that type of um, morale break or morale waiver, if you like, um, before, uh, as a precursor to the scenario. So, Absolutely. so you know, you, you can, you can decrease the number of aircraft that are actually present because they didn't make a rendezvous or because they decided that it was like not a good day to do it or whatever it might be. So you can have that sort of coalition thing that the, 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 um, the other th- thought that I had, just as you mentioned it there, Doug, was that there are some instances, some historical instances, of air forces um, being uh, really duffed up, uh, you know, being being really, you know, uh, smacked around, and and I'm thinking specifically of the British and the Americans in, in the Indo, uh, you know, in the Pacific theater in World War War uh, World War Two. Uh, where you know they took they took really bad losses. The the you know the Japanese planes were arguably superior until people figured out how to how to combat their um, you know particular advantages and and so on and so forth with thatch weaves and all all these sort of tactics and things. But but there are instances where um, air forces have have been have been quite badly smashed up but then have recovered enough to be able to give themselves a bit of breathing room so i think a good war game if you're talking about it from like a hobby perspective to a certain extent a good tabletop war game should if preferably have some sort of linkage between those those pilots and that unit and the next mission, so almost that like that little mini right. campaign, sort of scenario, a bit like Hornet Leader and these sort of things that were done, you know. So, so you, right. you, know, and 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 so you can track fatigue, you can track experience, and that that is a much richer um, depiction of real air uh, air war, you know. Um, uh, absolutely.
0: Well, and I and I think it's the problem for most of us that are squad leader babies or Panzer leader. You know, that was our first game. There really aren't that many campaigns in that kind of a game. You don't see the morale effects accumulate yet in a game like Hornet Leader, Phantom uh, Leader. You see that with the cumulative stress over time, and and even though it's it's very extrapolated and very generalized, it does represent that that cumulative fatigue in a morale effect on a unit. Um, doesn't necessarily have to take everybody out, but when it takes the key player out, it takes your flight leader out, or the lead of a of a key asset or enabler, your EA sixes, your you know RB sixty six, whatever asset that you need, when that person is the one who is low morale, fatigued. Um, you know, has uh, mm. millions of things weighing on them that can be affecting their morale. Maybe, maybe their maintenance is not that good, and so they're not really looking to push the mission uh, and go that far in country. There, there's a lot of different factors that I think games ignore at their peril, but no, they must generalize. Yes. And and I think that's that's always the difficulty. And and yeah. that was one of the things I wanted to get to here tonight. Is I wanted to say there's there's some things we know games ought to simulate and ought to model and ought to force you to think about. But at the same time, we're not saying that you have to take every one of those effects no. into, into account. No. Uh, and and for all the the people listening to the podcast, I'm sorry, when you go view it on YouTube, you will see uh, some of these things that we listed out there and some of the, the effects we've talked about. But the, the reality is, the games are generalized to make them either more accessible, so you mm-hmm. can actually finish it in a reasonable amount of time, yeah. or more <clears throat> enjoyable, so it's not a lot of bookkeeping. But but I think that you and I would agree that there should be, for it to really simulate the entire air domain, there must be some sort of morale effect. And likewise, kind of that output of the whole morale system, there must be a negative impact. There, there could be some positive impacts if if you're feeling good, but there needs to be Aircraft that don't go on the mission, air crews that don't fly, people that just aren't at the top of their game. As, as we talked about a few days ago, the fact that you can see negative morale cause people to either second guess their actions in combat in, in a moment of decision where they should guide the weapon to the target or they should engage a specific target or do something at the at the behest of one of their controllers – that indecision because there's, they're just not confident that everyone is behind them, that, that all the information is right or that the situational awareness picture is, is there. I, I think games should model that, but let's keep it fun. Let's not make it uh, third Reich. <laughs> yeah. And,
1: and, and, and I think, yes. And I, and I think that is the point. And I think that's, you know, as a, um, as a war games designer professionally, but also as a, as a, as a player on a, on a, on a, for fun bit, um, I think the minimum that you should have in an air game is different levels of experience. Um, right. I think that the minimum that would make it, um, and it doesn't have to be complex, uh, you know, uh, ace, experienced, novice, great, that'll do. All right, right? Let's, let's give them some advantages where it might be. But I think the other thing to think about And I'm not so sure that it is as common. We discussed this the other day as as perhaps it should be. Is that if the player is representing a single individual pilot, it might be a really quite good thing to say, well, you know, is that what level of morale is that pilot at today? And right. and you give you know the, especially if you're playing a team uh, based game where everybody is a pilot you know you've got five or six guys playing together or ladies playing together or whatever and they say okay and and not uh, sorry each person knowing what their morale start point is either drawn randomly right. which could be quite fun um, <laughs> you know or get them to decide if you want you know. But um, there's a fascinating, I think we talked about, there's a fascinating methodology that was used in a, in a, in a game which is based on SLA Marshall's writings, which is by Paddy Griffiths, yes. who I mentioned earlier, where each individual was either a fighter or a non-fighter. And and interestingly enough, you know, uh, uh, pilots and aircrew are were and are often chosen for their slightly aggressive nature because it's a it's a risky thing right. to do. You know, so there's a there's a character there's a character trait there that you're trying to select on to begin with. But um but to have that situation where you're not sure if the guy on your wing is really all in and is really gonna protect <laughs> your bass. Um or, exactly. or whether or not that flight that's over there that was supposed to come screaming in from sort of you know east it's not really screaming in from the east. It's sort of dawdling yeah. around, <laughs> and you're going, "Come on!" Man. And um, and and so I think I think you could have a lot of fun. It's almost a role playing aspect to the
0: game because, well, well there is, you know. And, and I think you talked about it. So for people who have not played, I believe it's Men Against Fire. Men Against Fire, yeah. Uh, Is is the system that those cards that you draw don't they're they're kind of specific in some ways. They'll tell you, okay, you can fight, but you can't cause damage to the enemy. You can't get killed and you can't cause damage to the enemy. So there's there's interesting combinations in there that do make it a bit of a role-playing game as you have to think, okay, what does this mean? Does this mean I launch my missile and then I turn off my radar? (laughs) You know, what what do I do to to guarantee that I I achieve my personal morale or uh, moral code victory conditions yep. that that then t- tell what I'm going to be able to do and it's going to have a positive effect, vice weighing on the individual. Um, but I, I think that would be interesting. It'd be a fascinating... I, I've, I've told people, I even... I told uh, Kevin at DVG uh, the other day when we were having uh, dinner, I said, someone needs to make a fighter role-playing game. I realize it yes. would be a bunch of arrogant people in the same room, but it might be fun role-playing. You know, <laughs> for that reason. Because you know, as you say, we do try to select in fighter aviation specifically, very aggressive, very, you know, self-confident, uh, action-oriented people, yeah. self-confident, action-oriented people. Those are the kind of people you generally surround yourself with in aviation. But there in even Marine Corps fighter squadrons, Air Force fighter squadrons, there are people that are not as aggressive as mm. others. And and it's funny because when you get in that ready room, you tend to think of, the, oh, that guy, mm. he's kind of passive. Well, He's twice as aggressive as the average US citizen. He's just not as aggressive as, you know, yes, your CEO, your, CO, left, your yeah, flight yeah. leader. Yeah, this guy over here. Yeah. So so it's it's interesting, but there, there certainly is. And I've seen it firsthand. I know we talked about it. I won't relate all the sea stories here, but I've seen firsthand aviators that are good aviators, competent aviators, good officers, but I've seen them when they pull their punches in combat or when they just don't act because they're really not. All in on killing the enemy. They're there to support the Marines and they're there to do whatever, but I don't know if I really want to engage that target. They, they, what if it in, in their own mind? And that's, and that's still a morale thing Hmm. because once again, if they were out there, they saw Marines being taken under direct fire by the enemy, they would engage. Yes. But when it's slightly questionable, when the enemy, have they surrendered? Have they abandoned their vehicles? Are the vehicles, you know, you know, are they next to a town instead of in a field? You know, all those moral decisions that in a sense have morale impacts, because yes. now that person has to live with the consequences of their actions.
1: And, and, and let's also not forget that the, um, the reality of the accuracy and, uh, you know, BDA, bomb damage assessment or, you know, uh, damage assessment from the air has historically been that's awful.
0: Terrible. It's been awful. <laughs> well, that, 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 I had this argument with, with uh, some of the pilots that I work with, and I was raised to use the term bomb hit assessment yeah. because that's about as good as I can give you from there. I can say, mm. did it hit where I intended? Did I see it detonate? Uh, as to the damage, as to how many bad guys I got, or did I even mm. really destroy the vehicle? Who knows? That's someone go up there and exploit it and and poke holes in the side of the tank to see if I actually got through it.
1: Well, I think I told you that I've got a fantastic I'm a closet carrying operational uh, you know operations <laughs> analyst, um, but uh, but I've got a fantastic O.R. book here which is um, which has been, it was a compilation. Um, of a guy who went back into all of the operational research um, studies that were done after Normandy. And, of course, you know, the, right. the, you know, the, the generally expect, uh, accepted myth – is that, you know, rocket-firing typhoons and, uh, you know, thunderbolts and stuff like this, you know, massacred hundreds of German <laughs> tanks and Hanamaks <laughs> and all this sort of stuff, in, you know, near the Falle Gap and all this stuff. And for sure, you know, they got some. But in actual fact, when they went back probably about a month later and started counting up the various places where all these air attacks, hundreds and hundreds oh, yeah. and hundreds of air attacks had taken place, yeah. Actually, we didn't kill that many with, with from the area. Yeah. I mean, there was quite a lot of disabled, uh, you know, and lots oh, of yeah. soft skins, but not very many armoured oh, vehicles, yeah. really. And the Germans would wait till the night time and they'd fix them and then they'd dry them off, you know, so...
0: Yeah, it's like Kosovo. We talked about that. That you know, even with my A ten friends who had claimed a lot of armor kills, and then we saw all these very pristine looking tanks and APCs leaving at the uh, places, at the end of the, uh, the peace yes. accord. Yeah, and we're like, I thought we destroyed them all because as you do the BDA and you count up, we've we've destroyed two times as many armored vehicles as the Serbs had when they started this conflict. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's, Over- it's BDA from altitude is notoriously bad. Yeah. Notoriously bad. And, and overclaiming as well, and
1: not intentionally overclaiming. I mean, I think I think. The figures oh, yeah. in World War II were about times seven. And I think we're seeing that yeah. in Ukraine as well, actually. If you count up how many Russian tanks have supposedly been killed, well, you know, it's like, no. oh, really? <laughs> okay. I
0: mean, it's getting well, I, and it's I, getting I'm, easier. I'm the first to tell the story that, you know, I'm, I'm as bad about that as a, as a forward air controller because we would come back and we would report our BDA and report the BDA, the flights that worked with us, but then they'd go back and they'd report their BDA and you know, the ops and intel guys, they were not cross-referencing that. Yes. So everybody's yes. tanks and vehicles got all totaled up, everybody's and one high- day we destroyed the tire. high yeah. You know, we've killed loads of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. We're like, that was two missions. We took out maybe six tanks, I think. Now, why is it 18 tanks on the board? So, yeah.
1: Yeah. So there's a, there's a little bit of that. But having said that... um, I think there's probably psychologically something interesting going on there, in as much as you know, I want to think that I shot this down, um, <laughs> yes, because and as I say, gun cameras, you know, obviously started to try, you know, started to try and bring a little bit more accuracy to it. Um, but you know, I want to feel that I have risked my life and I got something and I came back, and you know, uh, and and again, it was one of these ones where. Experienced flight leaders and experienced squadron leaders were going, okay, then. So we think we've done this, but did you really see it going to the sea? Yeah. Well, no, he, he had well, smoke he, coming off him. Really, did he have exactly. smoke coming off? Was that from his exhausts? You know? um, yeah. So the, the,
0: to be the best example of that is the uh, the Russian MiG pilots in the Korean War. And you read their accounts in Red Devils Over the Yalu, And it's, it's, a, it's a great book. I tell people, mm. if you haven't read it and you want to do any Korean War gaming, you need to read it to understand why all of our assumptions, both from the Russian and communist side and from the, uh, the UN side, are all absolutely wrong. Uh, because even in there, so many of their pilots were reporting cannon engagements at 1,000 meters. And their squadron CEOs who were World War II aces Going no, how can you hit the broadside of a barn no. with two twenty threes and a thirty seven at that range? You know, yeah. And so it was, it was the wishful thinking, and they were like, "Well, I saw smoke." Well, there was also a lot of anti aircraft fire at that B twenty nine. Are you sure that you got it, and not the, the anti aircraft, and, and vice versa? And there's know? and there's a there's a lovely
1: account in actual fact of of um, I can't remember who it was now. It was one of the German aces. Um, over Mulder or somewhere, somewhere like that, who got isolated and was being pounced on by three, um, by three British fighters, and he right. fired his guns um, so that it looked as though he was actually on fire, and no. then he broke <laughs> away into some clouds, <laughs> and they all thought right. that they'd got him, and it wasn't; it yeah. was actually yeah. the exhaust from it, whatever. <laughs> but um yeah. but but i no i think i think morale in all three of the domains is not very well represented sometimes i think that the air domain is particularly interesting because it has that long it has that long uh morale game if you like in terms of you know right. months and weeks and and uh all of the things to do with training and kit and logistics and support and leadership but it also has that real sort of instant, "Am I going to put my neck out here?" moment, uh, right. in, you know, very in, in very in very um, in a very time-compressed uh, situation where I think probably experience counts more than morale at that point. I think you're you're fighting or you're running. It's almost it's a bit right. more like naval at a tactical level. You know, you can either stay and fight but this might not be a good idea or I'm going to get out of Dodge (laughs) and I'm going to come back and get him later. And most of the, you know, most of the aces, if you're talking about fighter combat, most of the aces, you know, were very, very, very astute as to when to engage and when not to engage. That's why they became aces.
0: Uh, That's why They lived long enough. They didn't just find every fight to go into. Yes. Yeah.
1: So, uh, so it's a, it's a fascinating subject and one, which I think, um, well, it, it it's
0: under it's underutilized, let's just put it that way. Absolutely. We have just scratched the surface of it. I, I would love to talk longer, but I also know that you have things to do. I have things to do. Our podcast listeners, their eyes are rolling back in their head from this cerebral of a discussion. They want to know rules, modifiers, die rolls. Uh, but this, this has been awesome. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to discuss uh, morale in aviation wargaming and its impacts and and the things that we can model the things we should talk about and and the levels because i th- i think the the really important takeaway that we forget a lot of times is in aviation so much is encompassed in the scenario yes and that all of those external factors have to be worked into the scenario because you really can't deal with them at the tactical level, but they've shaped the battle up until the moment of engagement. And so they're critically important, but they're not something you're going to look on a table or roll a die. Great. It's going to be built into the construct of, of how many aircraft do you have? What is the the starting skill level of your pilots? What is their starting, you know, in, in blood Red guys, we talk about advantage level. Yeah. You know, they, they might be flying great airplanes, but if they are at a low morale point, they may not be at the top of their game. So they might not have advantage. They might not be flying as well as they could. Mm. Uh, so I think there's, there's a lot of ways it can be modeled, a lot of ways it can be um, interpreted. And I think that, at least for those of us that do mostly aerial war gaming, uh, it's, it's a fascinating challenge to see how we can incorporate that into into a series of games.
1: And, and and I think that last point there that you just made is is perhaps is my sort of last takeaway on it. And that is that if this scenario is going to represent something in a period of time, at a point in time where something has happened before and something will happen afterwards, then you are going to get, if you can have any sort of continuity in your war game, you know, play three missions or whatever it might be, even if they're short missions, you can you can you can extrapolate between them. So you know, the fir- the first one, right. everybody are novices. They're very enthusiastic, very gung-ho. How many losses did you take? Okay, well, let's extrapolate for the second game, which may be faster or, or, you know, whatever it might be, depending on the system that you're using. Let's play the second game, but let's assume now that, you know, they're not quite as gung-ho. They've seen some of their mates get (laughs) shut down. They've lost a couple of experienced guys. Their situational awareness has decreased a little bit because, you know, they're just concentrating on getting there and getting back. And then you know if they're successful, they shoot down some enemy, and they do a couple of successful missions. Then you bump it up a little bit. And you give them something else in terms of either their essay or their skill or what it might be. So I think I think multiple games, it iter- not iterative because that's that's more on the professional side, but linked scenarios, yes, or or even as you say, some sort of random table to say what has occurred to this squadron before it before the game starts, and keep it keep it secret from the other player
0: right right
1: all right you know this th- this looks like a really tough squadron and the other players going man I'm <laughs> gonna have a real hard problem with this but in actual fact on some pre by some previous means you have a, a history where that squadron in actual fact is is really not wanting to do this it really does not want to be there it wants to be at home
0: and and you know it I promised yeah, I promised our listeners we did not tell him about the Blood Red Skies campaign system, so I did not, no, no. I did not preload David with this information. Yeah, that, well, the thing that we've learned from playing a game like Blood Red Skies that is so much about combined effects on the morale and breaking squadrons and causing squadrons to disengage instead of last man standing, everyone being yeah. shot down, that that is part of the the fun of the game is there's a story between each one yeah. of these. If the squadron only lost one airplane but still left the fight in the first game, that's going to be a different impact than if they lost half of their fighters yes. before they broke and left. So there's there's a lot of different ways you can extrapolate a narrative to that. Uh, and as we've said, at the end of the day, it becomes a little bit of role-playing. And I think as much as we as war gamers want this very hard line between... Very serious, you know, uh, war games and role playing games. There's some elements of the RPG that, that transition well and that influence and allow us to put ourselves in the narrative of those squadrons and in the, in the, you know, situation that those aircrew are facing and their concerns and what is their morale going into that next scenario, knowing that still have to do their job or find a way to abort out of the Mm -hmm. mission. And and in five
1: years' time, that might not be the case because you know you have you have unmanned right. you know unmanned assets with AI on and so on and so forth that can do some things and they're fearless.
0: Um, but well, you assume they're fearless until we get the first AI goes. That's a really stupid mission. I don't want to do well, that.
1: <laughs> well, well, that was going to be my final point. In as much as you know, up to this point, you know, manned aircraft. Have a human factor and you know morale and motivation is right. a key point um for an ai driven platform somebody has pr- has to program a survival instinct into these things yes because otherwise they'll just be like kamikazes and and you'll lose them all right um i think that the right. latest russi report from ukraine said that nine um uh, nine out of ten drones that are being employed are being knocked down. Um, you know, pretty much instantly um, by whatever means. Right. So so to to have a very expensive unmanned system that can do what a manned system could do, they're going to have to be programmed with some sort of survival instinct. Otherwise, they're going to be just doing, you know, they, doctrinally, they'll be stupid. They'll fly in envelopes, yes. which are, you know, <laughs> you shouldn't go there. Really don't go there.
0: <laughs> so that, you know. Uh, although I think we've all validated that when they draw the big red circles and hash marks, you fly there a week later, you're like, where was all the stuff in this circle that was supposed it's just, to kill me? It's just so some place, isn't it? Did they just disagree? exactly? You're like, who from, yeah, who from Intel drew this circle? Because apparently there was nothing here to start with. So everything was over there, the area where they didn't draw a circle. So yeah, yeah, good stuff. Well, awesome! Thank you for sharing your time. I really appreciate it. No problem, uh, undoubtedly, I mean. we'll get together and, and have a discussion at some other point, and hopefully, we'll link up at either Connections one of these uh, one of the events. I know Mitch and his crew keeps trying to drag me to those, and yeah. since I'm not a professional DOD war gamer, I I try to avoid those. But uh, definitely, be a good time to compare notes and to to talk about aviation morale more. So, thank you, thank you for being and on the actually
1: program. play a war game. That would be that would be the thing to do. I think it's
0: crazy. Why would we do that? <laughs> <laughs> Why would we do that? <laughs> Why would we enjoy our getting together? Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me on. It's been quite interesting.